Hello, and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everybody. In case this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, let me remind you, this is an automotive-based podcast, so I don't know why you're here if you want to hear all about the legendary Pokemon that uh, you need to be catching right now. And, and when Sammy says automotive-based, he doesn't mean that we're like in a car using a car's Bluetooth microphone to record this podcast. He means we because talk about... that would ab- never work. <laughs> it, 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 well, I mean, I, th- I still think it might work if we really tried hard. But it, it does mean reminding me that the cabin is the worst place for audio, for both playing audio and recording audio. It's true, but uh, I don't think you deserve Carnegie Hall, Sammy. I don't oh. think, think you're there. I mean, you do have a beautifully rich timber in your voice that is soothing and informative, but you still got a few years. Well, while we're not talking about Pokemon and we're not going to be talking about uh, how to record audio inside of a car, we will be talking about all of the latest car news and reviews. And me and Ben have some two very cool vehicles to talk to you about this week. Uh, ben, I think I take the cake on this one. I have a very highly anticipated vehicle that people want to know more about. Can I go first, please? Yeah, you can totally go first. Just keep pumping yourself up. Yeah. Um, so I drove, I went all the way to Spain to drive the brand new, not quite finished and not quite available, I think it's a 2020 model year vehicle, it's called the Toyota Supra. Have you heard about this thing, Ben? I've heard about it, and from what I understand, you didn't actually drive a production Supra, but you drove a Gazoo Supra? Uh, I, so, this is interesting, because Gazoo Racing, which is Toyota's, um, I guess more international racing division, here in America, we know we know TRD, but everywhere else around the world, it's uh, Gazoo Racing. And they handled much of the, the motorsports deployment of the new Supra. So the Supra will go racing. Um, we'll see it in NASCAR, and it'll be interesting to see if it's a TRD Supra or a, or a Gazoo Racing Supra. I think it's actually going to be TRD. Here. Yeah, I would think so. So, again, it's a very interesting uh, thing there. But this is one of the first projects that Gazoo Racing, uh, production vehicles that Gazoo Racing has been involved in. Um, and... I'll tell you, this is a very fun to drive, very fast vehicle, and it's very difficult to tell you everything about it because, well, for one, they didn't tell me much about it. What, they uh, kept a lot very secret from us. What, what, let's back up just a second. Why is it so interesting? That What's the deal with the Supra? I mean, why is this anticipated? Why do people care about it? What's, what is the, the zeitgeist of the, of the Supra? Well, I believe um, a bunch of years ago, some movie called... Um, Fast and the Furious came out, and there was a Supra in it, and people were pretty stoked about that. And and that was enough to cause Toyota to build a sports car? Is that what you're saying? I think so, again. Um, actually, to be honest, the Supra has a very interesting um, history within the Toyota lineup. It's their big daddy sports car with a Toyota badge. It's always been that, and they're bringing it back. It's been away for, I think let's say 15 years, over 15 years. Yeah, that sounds right. And now they want to bring it back. And the way they're bringing it back is very interesting. Instead of Toyota doing all of the work themselves, they've uh, found another automaker, a small company called BMW, to do much of the heavy, the heavy lifting with this vehicle. Yeah, it's totally a weird situation because this is exactly what they did with their last sports car, isn't it? The, 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 yeah. the 86, the GT86, the FRS, the BRZ. That was in partnership with another company too. It's almost like Toyota doesn't trust itself 
to build a pure sports car on their own. That just seems strange to me. But and I, is, is it's it, not a unique, but it's not a unique problem in the industry. I would say Mazda and and Fiat both did the same thing when making the new MX-5 and the Alpha, the the Fiat Spider. And I don't think that I think what this means is that sports cars are so difficult to make money on that two automakers or more have to pool their resources together in order to get it done. Well, it's it's interesting because I mean. If you're a car company and you're talking about resources, it's hard to think of one that has more resources than Toyota. Obviously, BMW benefits substantially from this arrangement. And I'm assuming that there was some kind of technology trade where BMW gets access to Toyota's battery programs or hybrid electric systems. That would seem to make sense for me because Toyota has poured tons of research and development in that area. And that's something that's harder for a small company like BMW to do, even though that's where they're headed as well. But with their eye program. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I know I know the eye program has been has had varying degrees of success for the company. But um, just in terms of what BMW is bringing to the table here, it seems like they're kind of bringing everything. Is that right, Sandy? Yeah. Like, like 100 percent of the hardware is BMW. <laughs> that's incredible to me. I mean, okay. it, this is a car that's based on a car that BMW will also be selling. Right. So BMW, the BMW version of the Toyota Supra will be a drop top. The new Z for our Americans and Z for our Canadian listeners, uh, four. The new Z and Z4. Is that okay? Can I call it that way? Should we call it that way every time we refer it to? As you can say Z4? whatever you want. It's your podcast, man. I'm or just will here for the ride. I'm saying Z twice. I'm just here for the ride. Okay. So, which is really interesting because a Z4 is a convertible and a Supra has a roof. Uh, no, no target top, no nothing. It has a roof. Not yet. Okay, fine. No T top. Yeah. And those are two very different things, mainly because if you wanted a pure sports car, I think a roof was an, is a, a very important element of that product. And if uh, you want a sportier car, it is it, like a sportier two-door and a drop-top. Sometimes convertibles aren't considered as sporty as possible. It's true, but I mean, if you look at other sports cars, especially since you injected the word pure in there, like a true um, enthusiast would. The Miata has never had a roof, and that's probably the the purest sports car on the market. And then you look at other cars like the Corvette, and that was designed as a convertible first. So there's... Well, so I thought I thought it had like a target a target top too. No, right? but the, yeah, but or you mean like generation C1? No, I'm talking about from the C5 on. As far as I'm aware, convertible versions of the Corvette were designed with the same structural rigidity as the coupes. It's oh, they right. were designed to around the convertible concept, so that it wasn't so much taking off the roof. Uh, you were more just adding a roof to the same platform. So the the weights are not hugely different, and okay. the torsional rigidity is also not hugely different. So let's get back to this vehicle. What was it that BMW brings to the table that is in line with what um, Toyota needs out of a new Supra? Well, two things, rear-wheel drive and a turbocharged inline six-cylinder engine. These two things are important aspects of the Supra. As far as I understand, not all Supras were sold with, an, with a turbocharged inline six. But no, I mean probably the, the most popular or the, the most highly revered models were. You well, the one, in, the one in Fast and Furious definitely had one. But mm-hmm. if you, I mean, the original Celica Supra that came, well, the original Supra, which was a very limited production, late 70s, early 80s, and then the Celica Supra that succeeded it, uh, neither of those had a turbo available, period, from the factory. Uh, okay. It was a 5M GTE engine. I, I might be mixing those letters up. And then the, the third generation car, that brought us that turbo to the table, but it wasn't, you know, the only version of the car you could get. But at, at that point... 
the Supra had kind of transitioned from it, it was never really a sports car. It was always kind of like their sporty GT. The Celica was kind of their sports car for a while. Then the Supra came along. It was heavier. It, it did some racing, but it, it wasn't. It was more of a grand touring car, and kind of always has been. Even the 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 90s, the fourth generation Supra mm-hmm. was a large car. It, that weighed 500 pounds more than a Mazda RX-7 of the same of the same era. Wow. So it's it it wasn't huge. I mean, I think it was like what 3,400 pounds, 3,300 pounds, somewhere around there. Which is actually kind of big for that for that era, though. Well, you the you have to think too. It, it wasn't a small car. No, it, it was a it, two plus two. It, it's a car that has turbo piping. That that weighs something. Although I mean, the RX-7 had that too. But the RX-7 had the advantage of a super tiny engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 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 super was also the, this was an era where people weren't using exotic materials all that much in vehicles. So you didn't see composites. It was very rare to see composites outside of the luxury segment. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of balloons weights up a little bit too. Anyways, this is all to say that BMW is still making inline-six engines, and if they're going to continue that, if Toyota wants to continue that heritage of inline-six engines, they don't. I don't think they make an inline-six right now, and the only automaker I can think of that makes an inline-six besides BMW is Toyota. I mean, not Toyota, is Mercedes. Mercedes makes an inline-six now, a brand new one, um, and I don't think that's even available just yet. But BMW's been making inline-sixes for a long time, so if Toyota wants to, you know, say that they're still making Supras like they used to. Um, see, take a look at this inline six. It needs to come from BMW. I, I wonder if the, how much of that, do you, do you think that was really important to them or do you think that's marketing? Do you think that BMW just, I mean, obviously BMW has those engines and they're, they form a big part of their performance um, package, I guess you could say. But do you think that Toyota, that was a deal breaker? I'm not sure, but it is a very convenient uh, coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, Definitely. So I'm not sure if that's a deal breaker. I don't know how much of this thing was a deal breaker, but what I can tell you is it's got this turbocharged inline six. It sends over 300 horsepower to the to the rear wheels. It weighs under 3,300 pounds, and it uses only an eight-speed automatic, no manual transmission. Okay, and so what is it like to drive? It's fast. It's a very quick. It's extremely agile. Where did it, you drive it, first of all? I drove it in Spain in the Harama racetrack, which is a former F1 circuit. And now it's this racetrack that sits in the middle of a, like a like a gated community, which is very interesting. <laughs> is it like one of those resort tracks where like... You no, can... no, no. These are like real people's houses. Like real people. Fans, like not, not just racing people. <laughs> Wow. And anyways, it was the first time. It's tough because when you take a, a racetrack for the first time you've never been to in a car that is complete. First of all, this car also was was camoed up just like we've seen in all of our spy photos and just like the one that was in at Goodwood. Um, and the interior is also all covered up with like this felt this felt fabric as well. So only did you the, did you peel the fabric back? I mean, how could you not? Well, actually, um, it was a very hot day. I, I blasted the air conditioning. Some of the um, some of the felt came up and I opened the window so that I can hear some of the engine and as well some of the the felt came up and I can tell you what that's like in a little moment but what the most important thing is is when you're driving a car that you've never driven before in the for the first time on a track that you've never driven on the first time there's a lot of new information coming at you and you're trying to figure out what is what right you need to you need to think about what's happening in front of you and then you have to try to drive the car yeah but um, you're you're a pro i mean this is what you do you you have the tools to to handle this i have no i have no doubts that you didn't adequately absorb everything you needed to know about the supra well, I will say it, it presents a very unique situation. Sometimes when you're 
especially in a in a in a high horsepower vehicle. I don't know if we're ready to call over 300 horsepower high horsepower yet. Definitely not. But in a rear wheel drive sports car, especially when you're when you're putting your foot down in the middle of uh, of turns or exiting turns, um, you have to accommodate the the thrust going to the rear wheels, and then the car get, can get a little antsy. And I will say that this didn't happen in the in the Super, not very much at all, actually. It didn't feel like it was going to step out. It wasn't going to misbehave. It didn't constantly remind you, hey, you're driving something here. Respect it um, and, and treat it properly instead of focusing on the track. And if, it, I've got to say this car made you think of the, think more about the road in front of you, which is a very good characteristic of a sports car. But can you think of a recent BMW that has made you worry that it was going to step out and do crazy stuff? I mean, they're all pretty... Uh, yeah, M5. With the, all the nannies on, though, it's it's really yeah, quite so. manageable. Uh, I mean, did you have that on in the Supra when you were driving? Like, what was the electronic assistance like? Uh, we were driving. We drove it in normal mode and sport plus. Uh, sorry, sport mode. Okay. And there's a very drastic difference between the two modes. Um, normal mode, I was really disappointed with, and that was the first taste I got with the car. I was like, it's pretty good, but like the gear, the gear selection didn't didn't make any sense. Every time I wanted it to get going, it it didn't. Every time I hit the brakes, it didn't gear up. I was really disappointed with that, um, and everything was a little bit muted. It was a little bit of it, it was a very poor way to to have a first impression. But then I was told that it has a sport mode and we should put it in that. And it was like a real sports car after that. It was truly a very good difference between the two vehicles. It, there was feedback in the wheel, which is something that I was not expecting uh, in a modern uh, sports car. This, like so many times we've, you've heard us whine and complain that, you know, steering has become numb and this was not the case with this car. So, it, and I mean, I will also add that I'm also it, we also took it out on on the road afterwards, and that was quite a lot of fun. That was more fun than driving on the track. So, in your impression, is this a sports car or is it in continuing in the grand touring theme that's kind of defined the Supra for the last, I guess, almost its entire existence in North America? This is definitely a sports car, but there's one added added element I need to ask: like, can a sports car be good without being a track? car do you know what i mean yeah for sure i think okay. i think they're very different things so that's what this truly feels like it feels like a car that you can have a lot of fun with on the road you can have some fun with on the track but it's not like let's say a lotus or um like one of the more hardcore porsche came in and boxer models like the gts so it's are you saying it's more like an f-type no it's definitely more buttoned down than an f-type an f-type feels like a grand tourer at times and this doesn't feel anything at all like a Grand Touring car. Not at I all. Mean, I mean, because you're describing a 3,300-pound par- car with the same horsepower as a Camry. You know, it's it's yes. not... In my mind, that doesn't a... that doesn't scream like... I mean, a Mustang is wiping the floor with this car yeah. in terms in terms of... Straight-line speed. Not just straight-line speed, but I mean, just specs. It, it okay. seems like, you know, if, is... if, I'm, if I'm Toyota... Yeah. And I've built up the hype around this car that you mentioned earlier, and there's been such a long time that this car's been away from the market. And I come out with a car that gives me the same power as an EcoBoost four-cylinder Mustang. I I don't see I don't understand the logic behind that. Can you like walk me through what Toyota said the purpose of this car was? What they told you that the inspiration behind the car was? Okay, there's two things here. The, the power number we were told, it was just over 300. That's not 
at all a bullet like a, a like a like a set in stone number. In fact, if we're going by numbers that have been officially re- released, BMW this week posted numbers on the engine in the new Z4, and it's actually closer to 300 and uh, I got this here. Give me a second. 382, which is closer to 400 than it is yeah, 300. I would say 382 is decent. Again, it's we're good. still below the Mustang, though. Which is, <laughs> the Mustang V8, yes. Yeah, which is weird to me. Like, but 3,300 pounds, under 3,300 pounds, a Mustang can't manage that. I don't think the Mustang is all that much heavier. I'm going to check right now, but... Um, it's okay, not... and then what Toyota said they want they wanted to make a true sports car. They wanted to make something that appeals to current and previous Supra owners, something that reminds them of that. And they wanted a car for people who were not satisfied with the '86. And I asked them to to clarify because as an owner of uh, the FRS, the original or the first year of the the North American '86, I am quite satisfied with my car in many ways. Um, and they said this is a car, the the 86 is a car with a compromised body style, a 2 plus 2 layout, and it also needs more power. So the Supra, for whatever reason, no longer has a 2 plus 2 layout, which is what every generation of Supra had before it, um, but has a 50, at least 50%, almost 100% more horsepower. Yeah, it's funny to me how something that wasn't compromised in a past car is now suddenly a compromised body <laughs> yeah. style for, yeah. for marketing purposes. So that's, that's what I mean. There is a lot of – and the whole objective in this this exercise was to tell us nothing about the numbers, let us drive the car, and give the feedback, the pure unfiltered feedback. Because I think a lot of people play this game with, with spec sheets saying a car can only be good or bad depending on what the spec sheet says so. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that the spec sheet is the most important thing. Although I want to contribute that the Mustang GT is about 3,700 pounds, so 4,400 pounds more. That sounds significant to me. Yeah, but we're also talking about a car that, so the Mustang with the Performance Pack 2 on the recent Lightning Lap from Car and Driver, it was within 0.2 seconds, or sorry, um, it, it, was, it was extremely, extremely quick. Uh, it, it, around Virginia International. So it, tires and and such have made a huge difference in dealing with that kind of weight. So um, okay. I, 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 I'm just, I, I just feel like, want... I feel like I haven't at all talked about the driving experience of this car other than no. saying... Well, why haven't you? <laughs> yeah, let me, let, me, let me get to it. I mean, there's a lot of questions to answer, right? So let me tell you, the first lap, I was really disappointed with the, with the gear changes. It felt, everything felt a little muted, a little bit delayed. Putting it in sport mode, the car disappears. It really, really was uh, a natural fit for how I could drive. It had excellent uh, throttle feel. It had great steering response. The visibility was really good. I know that's not nothing worth mentioning all the time, but the visibility was really good. Um, and it picked up some pretty good speed. Um, we were we were going in excess of 200 kilometers of hour, uh, an hour on the straightaway, which was good. One of the issues that's was... About, the, uh, that's how many miles an hour? 130 miles an hour? Yes. Okay, I'm just saying for people who aren't familiar with kilometers. Um, and the only issue I had was, was the brakes were really, um, they felt beat up, they felt a little sore. And I was wondering if this used a brake-by-wire system, but was told by Toyota that it does not. And they have um, a brake booster and it's a normal conventional brake setup. And that was surprising. So it must have been because we were, I guess, the third or fourth wave of this um, event. And... Maybe it had been beaten on by by other drivers. I mean, that's possible. Uh, you know, you figure they would just change brake pads after every day, which is mm-hmm. kind of normal use for any any track experience. But the other thing is too. I mean, depends how the brakes are boosted. If it's a vacuum boost system, when you're on a racetrack and you lift off 
from full throttle to brake. Sometimes there's not enough vacuum in the system to generate uh, consistent braking power right away. Mm-hmm. That's why some track cars move to a manual brake system because you might not have you, you don't have any assistance, but you have a fully neutral and um, logical progression to the amount of brake pressure you can apply with your foot. So that might explain some of the pressure. Um, and I will admit that um, the 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 speed of the vehicle was really in, in impressive, and the grip of the vehicle was also very good. If, if they wanted to talk about satisfying people who were not satisfied or the issues the 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 compromises in the Toyota eighty six, power and grip are the two biggest issues in the eighty six. Um, and this car has power and grip for days. It felt great. Well, isn't it grip also, just a function of tires in the 86? It, and it, it, well, that for sure, absolutely. But even when you put on, um, when you put on more stickier rubber, it still does slide quite easily, and I find that to be fun. Um, the tires in this car actually are special. They're Toyota. Uh, they're, they're Michelin Pilot Super Sports, I believe are the are the are the name of the ones. Okay. Of the tires, which are very good. We we are used to Pilot Sport fours, which are the current like standard in in sport car tires these days. But Pilot Super Sports, these ones are exclusively made for the for the Supra. We had them on I think um, nineteen inch wheels, and there's going to be eighteen and seventeen inch wheels as well. Wow, that's interesting. Seventeens. Yeah, I believe so. So so if that's the case, how many different versions of the Supra are there going to be? Because I can't I can't imagine seventeens. I believe so, yes. I'm trying really hard to imagine a sports car with 17-inch rims on the market today. I can, think you think of, can you think of one? I mean, I, I don't know. I really Does don't the care. Miata come with 17s? Uh, not in this top trim. I believe it might in the lower trims. Hmm. Um, but I will say the next thing we did after we put it on the track is we put it on the road, and that's where the car really came alive. It, it felt like an unbelievably fast vehicle. And for reference, we actually... We actually um, had to drive 86s alongside it. This was because there were only four prototypes available to us, and we had eight journalists, and each of the prototypes had to be um, kind of chaperoned with a with someone from Toyota Gazoo Racing, and so the other journalist had to just follow along in an 86, which was probably the funnest part of the whole event, because. I think a lot of people have said this, driving a slow car fast is far more enjoyable than driving a fast car um, slow. Or driving the super slow. <laughs> yes. So when the journalist ahead of you takes off in a, or, or gets to, especially on the public, public roads, gets to some windy bits, you can keep up with them for a little bit in this Toyota Supra because you are, I mean, in the Toyota 86, because you are honestly, you're trying every possible trick in the in the book you have your foot to the ground you're doing full throttle upshifts and downshifts and you are really hustling as much as possible you're focused and then when the the Supra has a distinct advantage in grip and straight line speed so when that person just gets tired of seeing an 86 in their in their rearview mirror they break the speed limit and they just take off and then the poor 86 owner has to wait for third gear or 86 driver has to wait for third gear to wind out and then catch up to him um, it was a lot of fun, but then swap, swapping into the Supra from the 86 showcased all of the things that the Supra does a little bit better as well, even for a car that was as much fun to drive as the 86. If I thought the steering in the 86 was good, the Supra's steering was really responsive. It was um, I was worried that it was going to be darty, but it really wasn't. And the way the car turns, it feels like it can turn like 
like, oh man, it, it feels unreal the way it turns. It feels so direct and pointed that it made me think of the the Porsche Cayman directly of the Porsche Cayman in a way that it just rotates so easily and so naturally and without any regard for thinking about weight transfer or anything like that. The car really was settled on the road. So I was impressed in that in that way as well. So I you know being based on the Z4 has really kind of made me sad about the Supra. Because none of the previous Z cars were really all that dynamically interesting. It's That's true. The, the Z the Z cars are the cars I see the least at the racetrack when I go to a track day. Right. It's just it's not something that people who buy either are interested in going to a track day with, or maybe they're I, I know they're not as fast as as they could be. I mean, they're they're fun on the street, like you're describing the Supra, but they're not hyper focused track cars. So, I again I'm, I keep coming back to the idea of. What is Toyota trying to do with the Supra? Is this just a Me Too car because they feel like they should have a sports car and they just grabbed the Supra name because it was on the shelf? I, that sounds cynical, but I, I'm when your car is built entirely by another car company and mm-hmm. then you quote unquote tune it and then give it a classic name from your 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 history, one of the few names that Toyota has in North America that actually has some brand value. Yeah, it just seems strange to me. So this has happened, but we can say that this has happened. This has actually happened. The 86 is a Subaru BRZ, or it might be the other way around. The BRZ is a Toyota 86, and Toyota brought back a a nameplate, or at least a reference to the nameplate, of the Hachiroku, the AE86, which is an old Toyota Corolla. That was done entirely because they, they lost the Scion brand in North America. The the 86 name has cachet in Japan, which is why it was called the GT86 in Japan before Scion disappeared here. When they brought it over here, they called it the FRS. They didn't care anything about That's heritage. True. It, it wasn't the intention from the get-go. And, and then Alfa Romeo – I mean not Alfa. I keep saying Alfa Romeo when I want to say Fiat. Did this, did this with the 124 Spider, which is essentially a Mazda Miata but with a, yeah. a Turbo 1.4 in it. Yeah, but I mean, are we really going to start taking lessons from the <laughs> from Fiat? I mean, can you think <laughs> of mean, a you're worse? Right. Toyota is Toyota is actually. On the other hand, FCA does a great job with marketing. If you want to talk about the way the Challenger and Charger has remained relevant for I don't know a bajillion yeah. years. Yeah, but Fiat has done a terrible job. <laughs> Fiat is the the example of how not to bring a brand back to North America. Um, I mean, and- make one car with zero dealerships. And, and and it's not reliable. And then it's like that for a long time, even though you promised your dealers you'd give them something else and you don't give them anything else. And then the 500X happens. So it's it's just I, – I, I don't get it. I don't get what Toyota's trying to do. Mm-hmm. This is not a Toyota. There's nothing about it that's a Toyota. I don't care what it's called as long as it's fun. That's my idea. And, it's, and if it's fun, that's good. If it's fast, great. Um, it needs to be well priced. This is an inf- this is the information that we're really worried. About. I'm really worried about. Personally, I'm really worried about. If it's too expensive, it's not going to be worth talking about. It's just. It's going to be Corvette money. There's no way it's not Corvette money. How much is a base Corvette? Fifty. That's not bad. It's got to be a good step above the the Toyota 86, but it can't be double the price. I think Why that's not? just that's just way too much. That's just I mean, far far. How much do you think the Z4 is going to be? Have they released pricing on that? No, they haven't released pricing on that. Oh, I'm sorry. A Corvette is actually 59. That's a deep, That's okay. I think that's okay. 55, starting at 55. Sorry, I I I, I saw the wrong number. 
Okay. I think 55 is an all right number for a Supra to be had at. Assuming if what I drove, which was um, quite fun to drive. I don't know okay. if there was any additional features or, or, or options that enhanced the, the capability that was not uh, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be standard. So I get the Supra for 55,000, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sitting at a traffic light mm -hmm. and a guy pulls up beside me in a Camaro SS mm -hmm. and blows me away for $37,000. Okay. That sucks. Well, what happens when it comes to the, the corners, when you've got all the extra grip that, and there's the lightweight confidence. Uh, oh, okay, so it's a, it's a 1LE Camaro, and it destroys the Supra <laughs> in every single... The ZL1 1LE... The problem it, about the ZL1 1LE is that it's a Camaro, and you can't see out of it. I'm just saying that that car is within 0.2 seconds of a Ford GT on, on, on the lightning, on the light, on the lightning right. lap. And that's a $61,000 car. I also so, think that there's an added benefit from having BMW give some of the um, the hardware, especially when it came to the interior. I will say straight up, the, the parts I touched uh, in terms of turn signal, gear, gear stick, um, HVAC controls, mirrors, windows, doors, these were all BMW-based. They felt pretty high quality, and even the display cluster, and there seemed to be a infotainment system that was based loosely on what BMW call, what BMW has. Well, that's interesting because you've complained recently several times about how BMW is kind of phoning it in in terms of interiors. Uh, in terms of maybe their design, but their materials have been okay, especially, okay. In, especially in higher trim vehicles like the 5 Series. The 3 Series, well, I think, I, I've complained about the, the 3 Series, I've complained that it can get a little um, clunky feeling and looking. So I guess boiling it down, you've driven it, you think it's fun. You I think, think it's, it's gonna... fun, I think it's fast, I think it's a legitimate Cayman competitor. But the Cayman, the Cayman has a very limited, if, like, the, a, 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 a ZL1 Wenali can murder a Cayman at a, at a corner too. Yeah, and, and no one buys the Cayman. It's extremely low production. Um, so uh, my opinion of it is, is I just don't get it. I don't get what super what Toyota's doing with their heritage here. Uh, it really feels like a Me Too car. And that's too bad because I would have liked to have seen what... I mean, why didn't we get a Supra based on the Lexus LC platform? Which would have been they, cool. It, that would have been, really, yeah. been huge, but it would have been cool. I, it, it's just they could have done something with that, and it's in-house. and It's just... Toyota, please stop farming out your sports cars. I have I faith actually, that you. I have faith that you can build a good sports car. One hundred percent. LC, it shows that they can have like some fun. They can let their 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 engineering department can do something really cool, really interesting, and really um, really like it was it was definitely interesting to be in an LC. I think that's a very unique car. No, I love the LC. I, I'm not. That's what I'm saying is they could have taken that and done something with it. And instead, we have this, you know, Supra in name only. So right. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just. Too I simple. want to. I want to go back on the size of the Supra. It's small, man. It's very small. And although Toyota used a a a measurement that made no sense to me, they called it. They had a very good track to wheelbase ratio, which was. Oh, sorry, it was wheelbase to track ratio, which was like. 1.6 or something yeah it's totally and meaningless it doesn't mean anything <laughs> to anybody but it was very very tiny in terms of wheelbase and this didn't impact the stability of the vehicle at all and usually that's one of the compromises that vehicles with small wheelbases might have they well, might get a little squirrely or they might not feel so stable at higher speeds it has to be small i mean the z4 is small it's just no way around that and if you were to look at the z4's wheelbase which is i think 90 i had it right here 90 uh, seven inches. Um, that's really small. That's smaller than an 86 by, let's see, 
by oh my gosh by almost five four inches four or five yeah and it's 19 inches smaller than a corvette wheelbase that's tiny man yeah uh, but it also it, means it you know you're gonna get you have less interior room you have less cargo space i mean all that stuff goes with it yeah the interior it was it wasn't like the headroom wasn't tight and uh there's no there's no second you know there's no two seats behind you and it looks like the cargo room will be quite tight as well, with a with probably a worse trunk opening than even the Camaro might have. I was I was impressed, but I agree with you. It's very unique. Um, it's very different. It's very maybe niche, and we'll see what they they do in the next few years. I think they're going to use the feedback that they've received here to say that they're on the right they're on the right track dynamically in the way that the car drives but they need to do more. And if you had to ask me what makes a, a sports car a sports car is engagement, and I think a manual transmission is definitely mandatory in this situation. Yeah, but I don't I don't think we'll see that. I, I don't see a situation where we get a manual Supra. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, they would sell 100, 200. Yeah, I, I mean... It just feels grim, like, the, the idea. I, 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 I just... So much of this car seems to have been built by... Um, the finance side of Toyota, where they're like, okay, we'll get BMW to do it, and they have the production and everything, and that makes sense. So it doesn't seem like if someone raised their I hand and was like, so unfair. I really do. I think that I think the idea was built by the finance decision, but I think Toyota did a lot to make it feel um, not Germanic in terms of the way it drives. But what I'm saying is, it, they're not going to suddenly be like, oh yeah, we have to have a manual transmission, even though there's no manual Z4. You know. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't see where's that transmission coming from and, and who's testing it out. And then BMW has to build it. I, I don't know. Well, they, they did say that they're still studying the, the possibilities of different transmissions. But I think that was just a placeholder answer that didn't because they just didn't want to say no. Yeah, that's the that's the track to 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 wheelbase ratio answer. Yeah, it's just not <laughs> transmissions. <that. laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that was the exciting thing that I got to drive this week. I think you got to do something pretty cool, too. Um, but in a in a vehicle that I don't know has gotten enough attention yet. Why don't you hit me with it? Well, I I got to drive to the Arctic Ocean, Sammy, which is uh pretty amazing. I've I've never been to the I've been to the Arctic several times, in Yukon and Alaska, but I've never been to the ocean itself. And the the reason I was able to do that is because last year in November. They opened the first permanent road between a town called Inuvik in Northwest Territories and another town called Tuktoyaktuk, okay. which is right on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. And and when I say permanent road, it's because previously the only way to get to Tuk, as as most people call it because it's just shorter and easier, was over ice roads or by going up the Mackenzie River or by taking a plane. There was no way to drive there. And ice roads are seasonal in, in the summertime. The town was isolated. So they spent $300 million to build a gravel road that sits on a, um, a unique kind of polymer base that insulates the permafrost underneath the road from the heat generated by the road itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, 100 miles long from tip to tip. And when they built it, the most amazing thing is when you're driving on it, there's absolutely zero evidence of how it was built. Like, you don't see tracks from construction vehicles. You don't see piles of gravel. They used ice roads to build it. They built primarily in the winter because they didn't want to disturb the landscape. But more importantly, if the permafrost ever melts, you're totally screwed because right. it just becomes 60 feet of soup. And yeah. everything, everything that all your equipment just disappears into this ooze. It, it happened when they built the Alcan Highway um, in Alaska, where the, the Army Corps of Engineers at that time 
they were just like, hey, we're just going to dynamite through these mountains and everything will be cool and we'll put the road down and it doesn't matter. And then they would come back like a week later and sections of the road would just be gone, like <laughs> completely gone. All their bulldozers would have disappeared. <laughs> and it was a huge issue for a long time. So they learned a lot from that. But um, I was up there with Chevrolet to drive the 2019 Chevrolet Silverado. And I know we talked about the Denali a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and the Sierra how, Denali, yeah. Yeah, how unimpressive that vehicle was. Okay. And uh, this, this is Silverado is the same vehicle mechanically. They're on the same platform. But uh, the marketing is very, very different. And I think because of that, um, it, 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 I found it a much more acceptable pickup truck, if that makes any sense. I mean, one that you could, that's easier to swallow, understand, understand the the demographic why someone would buy it. Yeah, that makes way more sense. Yeah, it's it's you know when I when I got there, you know, it took a long time to get there. It, it was we flew to Edmonton from Montreal, and then from Edmonton we had to go uh, on a series of flights. That was it's my the first time I've ever been on an airplane where you would make it was like a local bus where we would stop at one airport and you could get off or get or, or stay on the plane and then other people would get on and then you would take off again. <laughs> and that happened a couple times going up and a couple times going back. So it was about another five hours in the air to get to where we were going. And when I got out of the airport, I got the keys to a Trail Boss version of the Silverado. So this is the – it's kind of like the Z7 One package plus. It, it gets a two-inch lift. So in some ways, it's like the GMC Sierra AT4, which I've also driven. Okay. But uh, it comes with uh, all the Z71 stuff, like you get Duratrac tires, uh, which are you know these 18-inch, big sidewall, lots of tread. You get skid plates. You get low-range four-wheel drive. You get Rancho shocks. And uh, that was perfect for the drive up to the Arctic Ocean, just because the road itself, even though it's gravel, and even though two graders leave each day, one from each town, and they meet in the middle <laughs> and then keep going uh, every day. That, that's how they maintain it. There's still parts of the road that uh, vary from moonlike to washboard. It's it's When we left town, the truck was actually really, really quiet mm-hmm. on the gravel. It, it didn't really seem like we were on gravel at all. And then we would get to parts where there were huge potholes, especially around the bridges, uh, leading to and from the bridges where the truck was bouncing all over the place. And, and uh, in fact, we had to turn off – I turned off traction control because there's some areas of the gravel that's so loose that if you get on the throttle a little bit, the truck kind of digs in mm. and it pushes and then you get a uh, – the, the traction control pulls your throttle. So it's just easier to deal with the constant wheel spin mm-hmm. uh, in those areas than to try and fight the, the electronic nannies. But all this to say, the Trail Boss, I was really impressed. It was um, it was comfortable. It dealt very well with the, the rough road surface and it's not really that expensive. One of the things that I think makes the Silverado so interesting is that it doesn't have any, for lack of a better word, gimmicks. It doesn't have anything that seems to be like, you know, the Ram's got that that ginormous touchscreen and it's got that air suspension. And then the Ford has got the aluminum um, uh, construction and the, um, the EcoBoost motors. What does the Silverado have? Well, it doesn't have like... It feels like it doesn't have anything, and that's well, a bit of a charm I, in itself, too. I, I hesitate to agree with you that some of the things you mentioned are gimmicks. Uh, no, I don't but think they're the they're unique s- qualities of those other cars. They're not necessary, but... Unique unique value proposition. Well, I think the air suspension plays a really big role, and Ford needed to do something to get their trucks from being so damn heavy. <laughs> so that's why they went to aluminum. <laughs> I, I agree yeah. I agree how they're marketing it is, is gimmicky, but uh, it, it did help solve a problem they had with their pickups. 
Uh, but you're right in the sense that of all the trucks that are out there, and I'm going to discount the Tundra because it's super old mm-hmm. and it just hasn't been changed, so it's not really fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of all the trucks that's out there, it, it really is the most basic in terms of it's value like, proposition. I don't know, basic. It's like plain. It's like... It's not, though, because it. because when I say basic, you're, you're still getting pushrod V8 engines. I mean, you have the 5.3 and you have the 6.2, but they have cylinder deactivation. They're extremely efficient. They make great power. There's a 2.7 liter turbocharged four-cylinder, which is the only one in the business, a I think. four-cylinder. See, that's, that's possible to be an interesting option. And then there's a diesel that's coming as well. So th- th- that stuff is there. But the bread and butter for Chevrolet is building a truck that's affordable and comfortable and that ticks off all the truck boxes without gimmicks, like you were saying. It doesn't have a fancy mm-hmm. tailgate like the GMC, and it doesn't have a giant touchscreen. The interior is very normal. I mean, even on the high country trucks, it doesn't really come across as super luxurious, which is fine because G- GMC has put a cap on them because right. they have Denali. So Chevrolet can't compete against Denali. It wouldn't make sense. Uh, all this combines to make a truck that has a totally different market position than any other truck out there Mm -hmm. and i think that's good for chevrolet i I like it i i like it more than the more than the why can't i speak tonight i like it more than i like the denali because Mm -hmm. it doesn't try to overreach it's not like hey here's a spend a ton of money on this amazing truck and it's super luxurious and then you get inside and you're just disappointed chevrolet's like hey here's a great truck you can drive every day that's comfortable right and that's exactly what it is okay so a couple of questions this this trail boss you, you you drove did you get to really take it off road at all? Besides this, uh, this I mean, it's a gravel road, right? Yeah, but it's so the road we were on, you could drive with a car. Yeah. If you drove it every day with a car, your car would be dead probably in a couple <laughs> months, because yeah. it's it's not a consistent surface. Right. So there were there were a couple dips in the road that would have just munched the bumper on on a car, and I think even a unibody based crossover would have trouble with the road just because of how rough certain sections are. And the other thing about the road, too, is there's nothing in between. It's like it connects two points, a community of 700 people and a community of 4,000 people. And in between, there's no cell service. There's nowhere to stop. There's just nothing. There's absolutely nothing except you and the Arctic Tundra. So you want to have a vehicle that's not going to let you down. And I, I would want something that's built pretty rugged. But to answer your question, we did go to a gravel pit and do very, very light off-roading. Not, not anything I would consider definitive about the vehicle. Uh, it's, it's got the two-inch lift, so it's, it's pretty much like a pickup truck when you go off-road. It, it's, okay, cool. it, there's no big surprises. There's no huge features that go with it. Just your general rugged, constructed uh, off-road truck. And then I want to ask, um, I want to ask you if you think this is any, like a significant uh, upgrade over. Um, not the last generation Silverado, because I think it is, but is it a big deal in comparison to the Ram or the Ford F-150? No, it's I, – well, I mean, like I said earlier, it's 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 not a big it, – it appeals to a middle section of the truck-buying public. It's I think it's an evolutionary design that's not hugely different than the truck it replaces, mm-hmm. and I think GM was really cautious when they built this truck. I, I thought they did that with the last truck. That was one of the things about the last generation. No, they, I, I thought I they like were that. very cautious on the last truck, and I thought this would be the, the the moment where they can double down and be like, "We we know what you like now." So I di- I disagree. I think the last truck really pushed things forward, especially with the V6. The 4.3 got so much better with the last generation. It was a legit legitimate choice. You didn't just have to grab a V8 anymore. You could get a 4.3 V6 with that truck okay. and be happy with it. Right, and now so you're gonna I, be able to get a four cylinder. I think that four cylinder sounds like a great deal. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'll have to drive it. I, I can't really say until then. I mean, I know I had a lot of super opinions without driving it, but <laughs> I don't seem to have those for the Silverado. I mean, a four-cylinder that's good for 310 horsepower and 348 pound-feet of torque. That's not far off of what the the 355 horsepower in the in the the stupid 5.3 liter V8 that needs to be discontinued. I don't the like fi- that engine at all. Look, here's what I'll say in defense of the 5.3. So I drove the 5.3 in the trail boss on the way up, and it was perfect for those conditions because when you're on gravel or a slippery surface or when you're off-roading, if you have too much power, you're just going to spin the wheels and the car is going to be out of control most of the time because your throttle inputs will be exaggerated. I drove a 6.2 on the way back, and I drove it in the high country, which comes with 22-inch rims that have oh really <laughs> wide yeah, really wide tires that aren't necessarily intended for off-road. And I can tell you that that car was a ha- that truck, sorry, was a handful. It was all over the road. It's it slid sideways on on several corners. I mean, not dangerously, but just in comparison to the 18-inch Duratrax and the 5.3, the 6.2 offered no advantage. So again, it okay. depends on your application. To me, that and 6.2 is is a sweetheart. It's one of my favorite engines in in the industry. I think it's 6.2. a good motor. It doesn't give you very good gas mileage. No. Uh, back to your Turbo Four thing. I'd be really curious to find out. Uh, what towing is like with that. Yeah, I would imagine that would be really not that great at towing, but how often do people tow? I think it's a, if it's a once in a once in a while sort of thing. Um, it's situational. I mean, absolutely. it's why are you buying your truck? You're going to have to buy the truck that fits for you. And that was that's what was interesting about going to the Arctic with these trucks. It, it, it cost GM a huge amount of money to get them there. It took four days to ship them from Detroit in inside covered carriers because you can't just drive them up there. They get destroyed by gravel. Uh, and plus, you know, you have a lot of trucks to get to one place at one time in a very isolated place. But just going up there in, in an environment where this is the daily reality for these people. It's it's not a, it's not a forced thing. It's not like a beautiful. It, it, it's it's not like they they set up an off road course that was super difficult to show you. Oh, here's the extreme thing this truck can do. It's like, hey, these people who live in a fairly extreme area, this is their day to day, and the truck can handle it. And that's true. It was below freezing the entire time we were there. Um, but the other thing that was interesting is that a lot of the times you go to a program for test driving vehicles and we've talked about this on the on the on the podcast where everything is set up perfectly to yep. accent everything about the vehicle that they want you to write about or they want you to talk about so we weren't on some beautiful forest road in BC dri- driving under the sun uh having having a great time stopping at you know coffee spots and and unique artisanal bakeries along the way we were in an area that had 22 hours of daylight <laughs> And zero amenities and a road that honestly changed every single day. And GM was like, here are the keys. Don't drive on the tundra. Have a good time. That's what it was. We didn't have minders with us. We weren't in a convoy. They just trusted us to get up to the Arctic. And I think that says a lot about um, their faith in the vehicle. And I appreciated that honesty from them. I mean, I think many other, tr- the, all the other mainstream trucks would be able to do this. I mean, I don't want to, yeah, I don't well, like ju- to other... say that this is like, uh, no. beautiful, like this is a, a wonderful thing that happened because of this, but I think every other truck could, could handle this situation. Yeah, well, I too. said every other passenger car could do it too. I mean, I said that earlier. <laughs> yes. But I... <laughs> but it's, it's still very, very different from your standard truck launch. Right. Um, I wanted to talk about one more thing. Uh, actually, what, do you know, did you have pricing on this vehicle yet? No, in the U.S. it starts around 25, I think. Okay. But in Can- I, I don't have full line pricing. All right, cool. And then I wanted to continue on one more news story that came out this oh, week. Oh, so you're done with the Silverado? That's all you cared about? Yeah. What do you want to tell me? I don't know. It's pretty. It's just pretty awesome. I I I drove up to a a distant early warning radar station. Mm-hmm. 
that that's still operating out there. So distant distant early morning radar was this one was built in 1990, but it was part of the original line of first line defense against I don't think ICBMs. I think it was mostly against uh, bombers coming over the North Pole from Russia. Mm-hmm. So it was built in conjunction with the United States, and so we showed up at this this radar station and there's like all these buildings that say property of RCMP. There's a camera, blah, blah, blah. And there's no, there's no gate though. And there's no fencing. And we just drove in and took a whole bunch of photos. <laughs> and there was a, a generator running the whole time attached to a building, a big building uh, attached to these two giant jet, a, uh, kerosene fuel depot things, but no one ever came out to like see what was up. We were just hanging out, and that felt super low key. <laughs> and I'm surprised that this stuff even still exists, like in the age of satellites. You know, like I don't know if they, if you can fly low enough to be under satellite detection, but anyway, if if you do, the Tuk to Yuk is gonna get you. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think it's super cool. Was it cold? Was it really cold? It was. It was pretty cold. It was minus one, and it was windy, and I dunked my face in the Arctic Ocean, and that was really cold. <laughs> well, that, why did you do that? Because why not? when else am I ever going to be up not? there? It was, <laughs> I got it all in my sinuses, and I smelled like the Arctic for the rest of the trip. It was, it was. Pre- I, I enjoyed that part that of it. Is that good? That's a good thing. I was totally like teeth chatteringly cold after it. I didn't have a towel. I had like this, <laughs> this like wet napkin from an airplane <laughs> that I tried to use. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's there's one store in Tuktoyuktuk. What, they, what do they sell? To. They sell everything. I mean, it's a groceries, pharmacy, post office was there. Um, it's uh, there's not it's not a lot. It, what, what one thing that I kept thinking about is how much the town is going to change now because you can actually get there and during a time that's not minus 40, minus 50, which is their winter, which is when their ice road was open before. And they said that this summer so far they've had six thousand visitors. I heard that and this is the the main draw of the of the um of this city is this road now and people want to see this road because it used to be it seemed like when they started the road and they paid for it there was some opportunity for oil companies and natural resources to be um harnessed from this area but since then there's been a a deal signed for like a pipeline and now none of those industries are going to be coming through anymore and now they just have this road there's a couple interesting things about what you just mentioned. First, the people in Tuck did not ask for the road. Yeah. They and 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 I had people when I was there come up to me and tell me we did not ask for this. <laughs> Straight up. I love and that. I, I would love that like <laughs> that experience of you just being on the road and somebody being like, "You here for the road?" Well, we. <laughs> and then like, oh, okay, bye, and that's it. So so I asked the guy, they had the guy who built it, the engineer, he was there. Yeah. And he did a presentation. And I'm like, so why did you build the road? And he's like, well, I didn't don't really have access to the decision-making information. And I'm like, dude, like, someone told you why they built the $300 million road that you built. Like, it's not, it's not like you showed up and they gave you all this cash and said, build a road. And you said, okay. <laughs> What's that? $300 million for 100 miles. Yeah, it, it, it costs $15,000 per kilometer to maintain every year. God. Which means 2.2 million to maintain every single year. Wow! And it it has an economic benefit to the people of Tuck of 1.5 million dollars every year. Okay. So you can see there's a disparity in the math there. <laughs> it doesn't close, make <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And so there. the guy's like he's like, well, you know, uh, improving the living of the entire tiny tiny population that lives here. But then he's like, yeah, and there's like you know hopes for mineral exploration and all that. So why not just say that? I mean, everyone knows that you just want to pillage and plunder the North. It's it's not like <laughs> It's not like this was a, a, from the good of the, the hearts of the oil companies. Anyway, 
that's my digression. But it's it's it is an unusual thing that that is you're gonna completely change the town. The town has no real hotels. It doesn't really have it. It doesn't have any restaurants at all. Um, which is something that people in Tuck said, oh, now we can go down to Inuvik and go to a restaurant. This is something we've never been right. able to do before. You know, a gas, gas, they can go get cheaper gas if they want. The highest gas they had was like 280 a liter, which would translate into something like 8 or $9 a gallon. Oh. Right now it's more around $4 a gallon, so it's okay. it's, it's not so bad. Yeah. But um, the character of the town is definitely going to change. And that, that's kind of too bad. You know, you, you create access to something and then you destroy it with that access. So we'll see what happens, I guess. Very cool. I was hoping to hear more about, you know, uniquely um, northern experiences. If you ate something that was unique to the town or if you saw something or if there was they any art us... or music or any culture that is something that you haven't seen prior. Well, they made us they made us uh, chili and soup in the council halls, the town town council halls, which is pretty cool. We just kind of sat around eating that mm-hmm. and hanging out with the, the people in the town. Um, we also had a, a dance demonstration. So... The Inuit people who who live there, they have there's a dance. I guess there's an Inuit dance competition every year, and some of the members of the Northwest Territories team live in Tuck, and so they did a demonstration that was super cool. It was singing and dancing, and I, I really enjoyed that, and uh, it was super entertaining. So I, I felt really privileged to be able to see that, and we did that actually out by the Arctic Ocean as well, which would, cool. you know kind of kind of only compounded the the awesomeness. This is the first time you've seen the Arctic Ocean. Have you seen all oceans yeah. now? No, I haven't seen all oceans. How close are you to that? I have never seen the Indian Ocean. Okay. Have you have you seen the Indian Ocean? I do not think so. No, I haven't. I haven't. I I don't remember if I've. Yeah, I have. Never mind. Um, I don't know how. There's seven oceans, seven seas. We're really dr- drifting pretty far from the Actually, content here. <laughs> in South Africa, does the Indian Ocean reach to South Africa? Doesn't it? It depends what part. Okay, I'll look into that for you. All right. Um, anyways, there's one more. There was one more thing I wanted to talk about on the podcast. Do you mind? Do can we go into this? We got to do it quick. All right. So Amazon, um, your favorite online retailer that knows everything about you, wants to know more about you while you're driving, and they're doing that by putting an Amazon Echo, which is their like home assistant, but instead of it being in your home, they want to put it in your car. How do you feel about this? I feel, I don't, I don't feel very good about it to be honest. Um, I think that there's some opportunities that are probably going to be really helpful. It's just like having Amazon, I mean, uh, Android Auto or, or Apple Siri in your car where you can talk to it and get info, important information like telling you the news or playing your driving playlist. But I'm starting to realize that some of these features are just – or some of these tech, these devices are designed to just sell you stuff. And that gets a little annoying every once in a while. So let me ask you, what's the difference between having Amazon Alexa in your car and having a Subaru camera that watches you at all times and makes decisions based on your behavior? <laughs> well, so the Amazon Alexa item, like it reports back home and um, and it feels like it's 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 trying to get a certain amount of information out of me, which is what am I interested in buying next? While the Subaru, I'm I'm hoping. As far as I understand, Subaru's intention here is not what I'm going to buy next, is but to keep their cars uh, and me as a result of it safe and hopefully buying another Subaru. You're so you're so trusting, Sammy. Um, I my my other question is, can I use this Alexa to just drive the car using voice commands exclusively? Can I be like, <laughs> I Alexa, turn left. Alexa, stop. Alexa, stop. Alexa, stop. Like, <laughs> is a, that is that the sequence of commands before an accident? To, it doesn't seem to connect to an OBD2 port, which is too bad. And maybe that would give you some control over the vehicle. It just seems to have a Bluetooth, and uh, that's it. And it just sits on your dash. Yeah, it has. So like a passenger could. A passenger could order a bunch of stuff, yeah. like while you're not paying attention. Yeah, 
and then just intercept it on your on your porch because they just leave that stuff on your porch. God, they don't care. The worst. I hate that. <laughs> I also hate the couriers that like they come to your door, but instead of knocking or ringing a doorbell, they just like whisper like into the like as close as they can into the. Hey, into the, hey are you are you home? are you? Home? I guess he's not home. And then <laughs> like, <laughs> leave like leave the thing there, and you've been like I'm yeah. waiting here all day. There's gotta be a, an internal Amazon contest as to how quickly you can get back in your vehicle after ringing the doorbell. Yeah. Like they must time it, and like you just dash back to the car. It's it's incredible. Absolutely, and um, I mean I don't know I, I don't know if this is something that people have been asking for. Uh, no one's been asking for this. Just abs- If you asked for the Amazon Alexa in your car, please email us yeah, or contact and us. And let yourself. us know. Yeah, and if they wanted to get in touch with us, how would they do that, Sam? I'd prefer uh, Twitter. That's where all of meaningful conversation seems to happen. You can reach me at Sammy underscore, huh? Um, but if you want to get in touch with Ben, you can find him on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can also email him. He's Benjamin at Hunting uh, at Benjamin. Uh-oh, Ben, I'm messing it up. Wow. <laughs> He's- Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. That's, that's, it doesn't get much simpler than my name. But uh, it, you can also find us at UnnamedAutomotivePodcast.com. There's a contact form there as long, along with all sorts of other delicious things like subscription buttons for all your favorite podcast services. Yeah, links to the Google room. Play iTunes, po- Podcast Plus, Plusing Podcast, yeah, so CastBox, Spotify. Yeah. Did I say Spotify? I hope so. Uh, you can listen to old podcasts there. You can go to our Facebook page and see uh, pictures from whatever we're doing on that on that page as well. And um, Sammy, uh, what are you going to be doing next week that we're going to be talking about? Oh, next week is going to be an interesting one. I've got a car that I've never dr- – I've got a brand or something that I've never driven before. I've never had an Alpina in my life, and next week I'll be driving one of those. That's pretty amazing. I had no idea you were doing that. Oh, I don't I don't tell you everything, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be driving I'm actually currently driving a Jeep Wrangler, the the new generation Wrangler, and that's my first time driving the the redesign, so I'm pretty excited to talk about that. Very cool. I can't wait to do that. And we've also got another I think we're going to have another bo- a bonus episode coming very soon, so uh keep your ears peeled for that. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody.